Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 11. Last week we wrapped up our series of sermons on the covenant of grace. And in the fall we are going to be looking at Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. But for the rest of the summer uh, we thought what we would do is the pastors would pick some of their favorite psalms to share with you. To spend some time studying and share what God shows us. And this first psalm we're going to look at is Psalm 11. Please give your full attention to the word of God. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. I have only experienced an MRI in one of those infernal closed machines once in my life, and I really hope I never have to do it again. If you've never had the pleasure of an MRI, what they do is they lie you down on a rail about as, a metal rail about as wide as you are, and then they slide you into this huge machine into a tube that is barely bigger than your body. They slide you into it completely. And they tell you to lie there and hold still for a very long time. It is hopefully the closest thing to being in a coffin that you'll ever experience this side of death. I am slightly claustrophobic. So they put a blindfold over my eyes so I couldn't see. They put earphones on my ears. And then they asked me what kind of music that I like. I said I could listen to whatever style of music I like. So I told them. Didn't matter a bit, <laughs> whatever kind of music it was, because you couldn't hear a thing except the sound of the machine, which sounds like bulldozers going over top of you or jackhammers hammering inches from your face. It was the longest 30 minutes of my life. I couldn't see the tight quarters that I was in, but I knew how tight the quarters I, that I was in, the upright shall behold his face. I have only experienced an MRI in one of those infernal closed machines once in my life, and I really hope I never have to do it again. If you've never had the pleasure of an MRI, what they do is they lie you down on a rail, about as, a metal rail about as wide as you are, and then they slide you into this huge machine, into a tube that is barely bigger than your body. They slide you into it completely, and they tell you to lie there and hold still for a very long time. It is hopefully the closest thing to being in a coffin that you'll ever experience this side of death. I am slightly claustrophobic, so they put a blindfold over my eyes so I couldn't see. They put earphones on my ears, 
And then they asked me what kind of music that I liked. I said I could listen to whatever style of music I liked. So I told them, didn't matter a bit. <laughs> whatever kind of music it was, because you couldn't hear a thing except the sound of the machine, which sounds like bulldozers going over top of you or jackhammers hammering inches from your face. It was the longest 30 minutes of my life. I couldn't see the tight quarters that I was in, but I knew how tight the quarters I, that I was in. And every time I started to think about it, this wave of panic would sweep over me. It was the worst test of mental and emotional discipline that I have ever remember having in my life. This week, as I was studying Psalm 11, I thought, you know, that MRI experience is a pretty good metaphor for what it's like to live as a Christian in this fallen, wicked, dark world. If you begin to focus on your immediate circumstances instead of the bigger picture, you will succumb to your fear. If you focus on your immediate circumstances instead of the bigger picture, you will succumb to your fears. Psalm 11 was written by David during a fear-inducing crisis in his life. He describes it in verse 2. Actually, it's not him describing it. One of the difficulties sometimes in interpreting the Psalms is figure out whose voice are we listening to. And in, Psalm, in verse 2, it's not David speaking, it's David quoting his friends and advisors. And this is what they say to David. The wicked bend the bow, they have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. So one of the things that make the Psalms of the Bible so different than the hymns of our hymn book or the songs that we sing in worship, they are so much more realistic, so much more honest about how difficult it is to live a life of faith in a fallen world. 40% of the Psalms are laments. A lament is an expression of grief, sorrow, complaint even, or confusion about how difficult it is to live in this fallen world by faith. Isn't that a better reflection of life? 60-40. 60% Joy, 40%, sorrow and grief. That's just what it's like living as sinners, among sinners, in a corrupted world. Here, David may be talking about the threat. He may be talking about a specific plot to kill him. Or, more likely, he's speaking in metaphorical or figurative terms about the state of persecution that believers tend to live in in this fallen world. If he's writing about himself, then he could have been writing about the time that Saul was trying to kill him. Or maybe the time when his son Absalom pulled off a coup and drove him from the throne. If he's talking about general terms, he could be speaking to any of us. About any threat, any difficulty, any hostility, any suffering and trial that we face. You see, that's the wisdom in giving us the Psalter, the Psalms of the Bible. 
They rarely speak in specific terms about what the psalmist, David or whatever, whoever the psalmist is, they rarely speak in specific terms about what they're facing. They use nonspecific poetic metaphors, figurative language, so that we can easily apply it to our own lives, our own fearful circumstances, our own trials, our own sufferings. David here is in some kind of mortal danger. And so he quotes the counsel that his friends and his advisors give to him in the midst of that threat. They say to him, flee like a bird to your mountain. Run away, David. I have birds that come to my bird feeder. And as you sit there and watch the birds, you realize how nervous they are when they're eating at the feeder. Their radar is on high alert. Constantly looking around them, constantly ready to, to take off and fly at the moment, any, any hint of movement or danger, the possibility of some predator. Where do they fly? They fly to the trees. A place of refuge, a place of safety, they fly to the trees. Well, David is writing in Palestine in his day, and the trees in Palestine are in the mountains. That's where the forests are. And so his Friends who really do care about him with the best of intentions, they say, flee, David, flee to the mountains like a bird. Go there and find your refuge. Now, I need to stop here for a second and make it clear that fleeing from danger, threat, trials, sufferings, that's not always wrong. We know that from the rest of Scripture. There are times when those who love the Lord, actually flee, and they do so wisely. David fled himself from Saul when Saul tried to kill him. David fled, David and his family fled from Absalom when he came to take over the throne. Lot took his family and fled from Sodom. Elijah fled from Jezebel. Joseph, Mary, and Jesus fled from Herod into Egypt. Paul fled a plot to kill him in, in Damascus by being lowered in a basket over the wall. He fled. So it's not wrong to flee in every case. Jesus, in this, the, uh, the last time's discourse in Matthew 24, he told his followers, when they see the abomination of desolation in the temple, flee to the mountains. He literally told them, flee to the mountains. That was what they were to do when the Romans came to desecrate the temple. On the other hand, when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, Peter said, don't go to Jerusalem, flee, run the other way, Jesus. But Jesus went anyway. When Paul went to Jerusalem, he had Christians saying, don't go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. They're going to turn you over to the Romans. They're going to execute you. Don't go to Jerusalem. Paul went anyway. So it's not the fleeing that is sinful. It's not the fleeing that's wrong. It's the reason why you flee. The reason for running. Are you fleeing because of fear or are you fleeing in faith? Are you driven by a fear of losing your money, losing your status in this world, losing your comfort in this world, losing your health, losing even your life? Is that what's driving you to flee? Or are you fleeing as an act of trust in God to provide and care for you? You can trust God in the mountains, but you can also trust him walking through the valley of the shadow of death. 
The motivation for David's friends to tell him to flee is in verse 3. This is what his friends are saying to him. Flee, David, flee like a bird to the mountains because, in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's not a statement of faith. It may be a realistic description of the circumstances, but they're telling David to flee because of these very difficult circumstances. They're not calling upon him to exercise faith. They're calling him to respond in the flesh to escape a difficult situation. It's a declaration of hopelessness, helplessness, and despair. The foundations that they're referring to, I think, are pretty clear. The foundations of any society, the society's pillars and ground rules, the society's leaders, institutions, laws. When these things are destroyed, chaos and anarchy follow. The foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? When the wicked rule, wrongs become right and rights become wrong. God is mocked and human beings are held up as autonomous. And that, even the foundation of God's people, the foundation of the church in our lives can sometimes be destroyed, can sometimes be broken down. Paul called the church the pillar and ground of the truth. But we see in our own day how often the church forsakes the truth for the lies of the culture. So when the foundations of your society are destroyed and falling apart, when even the church seems to be falling apart, what do you do? Do you give in to fear and seek escape in the flesh? This psalm is about how to respond to that fear. James Montgomery Boyce, in his sermon on this passage, he, he summarizes the message this way. He says, how faith responds to fear's counsel. How faith responds to fear's counsel. That's what verses 4 through 7 are. Verses 4 through 7 is David speaking. That's the voice of David. He's responding to what his friends and advisors are telling him to do to escape. It isn't a prayer. It's a statement of faith. It's a creed. Verse 1, David, that actually begins with David's voice in verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. And I want you to notice if you're looking at the ESV that Lord is in all capitals, L-O-R-D. When it's all, in all capitals, what the ESV is indicating is that in the original Hebrew, it's the name Yahweh. The personal name of God. The covenant name of God. The name that God gave to his people that represents everything about who he is and what he's about. In Yahweh I take refuge, David said. Now that's what a righteous person should say. But it's clear here that it's not just some kind of pious platitude. It isn't some kind of faith in faith. As much as you like to hear celebrities and athletes and politicians standing up and saying, I'm a man of faith or I'm a woman of faith. When they get interviewed about it, when they get asked about it, they'll say, oh, my faith is very important to me. My faith got me through that really hard time because they don't want to name names. They don't want to be too specific because there's a cost 
to naming the name of Jesus, to naming the name of Yahweh. No, David is talking about this God of the covenant, the covenant of grace that we've been studying about these last couple of months. That God who provides redemption only in the way that the covenant reveals to us throughout Scripture. In verses 4 through 7, what David does is he gives us a brief theology lesson. That's how you respond to fear. You turn to theology. Theology is not some kind of dry academic pursuit. I get troubled when people say, oh, our church cares too much about theology. Our church cares too much about doctrine. Well, if it is only a dry academic pursuit, then yeah, that's not very helpful. But that's not what true theology is. The word theology means the study of God. It's digging deeper into who God is. It's trying to understand at a much deeper level who he is because you love him. You're pursuing him, and the way you pursue him is by understanding him more deeply, and there is so much depth in the word of God to reveal us who God is. The focus of faith in times when fear seeks to overtake us has to be based in sound biblical theology, and that's what David does. The focus he gives us, first of all, is that the Lord is on the throne. Verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. And he's not talking about the earthly temple there. He's talking about the temple in heaven. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. The Lord reigns. That is the cry of faith. The Lord reigns. He is sovereign over every situation, every institution, every authority on earth. David's foundation cannot be destroyed. His friends and advisors are pointing around him to, to, the, to the chaos in society and the way the wicked rule and the way they attack the righteous. And David says, the Lord's on the throne. The Lord reigns. Remember, fear focuses on the immediate circumstances and not the bigger picture. Fear focuses on the immediate circumstances and not the bigger picture. David is trying to lift our eyes of faith to the throne of God in heaven. When fear comes, look to the throne. Even Satan, we know from the book of Job, has to get permission from the throne of God in order to act on earth. Even the murder of God's only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, took place according to, according to Acts 4, according to what God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. When Stephen was about to be stoned to death for preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 7, it says that he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That's what gave Stephen the courage to stand there and be martyred for his faith and to cry out as the stones came raining down on him, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's courage that overcomes fear. It's not wrong to feel fear in the face of great threats and dangers and suffering, but you've got to overcome that fear 
by faith. That's what courage is. Courage isn't the absence of fear. Courage is overcoming fear by faith. In Revelation chapter 4, now think about the book of Revelation for a second. From chapter 6 on, it's full of really scary apocalyptic visions. Pictures of great suffering, of spiritual warfare on earth and on heaven between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And there's, it's it portrayed in so many graphic and horrific ways the future of the church. When John wrote this in the first century, God is showing him what's to come for the church throughout the next who knows how many generations. That's chapter 6 and on. But you know what's in chapters 4 and 5? God gives John a vision of what? The throne room of heaven. To quote it from Revelation 4, John says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. John, and we also, when we look at what the Scriptures promise is to come of the struggle of the church until Christ returns, begin by looking to the throne. No matter what's to come, God is sovereign. The Lord reigns. Nothing is outside of his plan or control. Now that's something that messes with our tiny little human minds. We don't understand how our wills and our choices and our sins, how that all gets tied into God's plan and purpose for history. We can't understand that. It's beyond us to understand that. All we need to know is what the scriptures make clear from beginning to end is that Christ reigns. The Lord is on the throne. What does this mean for whatever kind of fear you're facing in your life today? Believer, you are not a victim. You are never a victim. No matter what you go through, you are not a victim of your circumstances. You are not a victim of your oppressor. You're not a victim of a bad president. You're not the victim of a bad judge. You're not the victim of a bad employer. You're not the victim of a bad teacher. You're not the victim of an abusive parent or an abusive spouse. As difficult as it is to wrestle with the truth of it, just know that in the midst of your suffering, the Lord is on the throne. He reigns. That's the first theological truth that David gives us how his courage overcame his fear. The second theological truth is that this Lord who is on the throne is watching all. God is both transcendent and imminent. He is both omnipotent and omniscient. As David says it simply in verse 4, his eyes see. His eyes see. You know, David's in a situation where the wicked are plotting against him, seeking to kill him, to attack him. And repeatedly in the Psalms, the psalmist will quote what the wicked are thinking, what the wicked are saying. That He'll quote them as saying, where is your God? In the midst of this trial that you're going through, where is your God? And God is saying here, you don't see me, but I see you. I see your actions. I see your thoughts. I hear your words. Nothing escapes his all-encompassing sight. 
Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. All eight billion of us. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. When I, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Lord is on the throne and he sees everything, even your thoughts. I've been trying for years to, in my own practice and in encouraging other brothers and sisters in Christ, to bring back what used to be a cliche that became meaningless but has been lost completely, which is Lord willing. Because we should preface everything we talk about when we say, I'm going to take this job, I'm going to move to this city, I'm going to marry this woman should always be prefaced by saying, Lord willing. It was a good thing that Christians used to say that, to acknowledge that the Lord is sovereign. He's on the throne. Lord willing, this is what I will do. Another cliche phrase from the past that I'd like to bring back in light of Psalm 11, Lord knows. Lord knows I've been through some really difficult times. Lord knows the wicked rule. Lord knows, the Lord sees completely. The advisors are telling David the wicked bend their bow and fit their arrow in the dark. And isn't that the way of unbelief? Isn't that the way of those who reject what God has revealed in his word? They're in the dark. They think that dark is their refuge. They think that dark hides them. They think that darkness keeps them from being accountable for what they're doing. But David says, the eyes of the Lord see. God is not only on the throne, God not only sees all, but the third truth, the third theological truth that dispels fear is that the Lord is testing all. This is, gets to the purpose. God is sovereign, God sees, but we have to know there's a purpose behind all of this. God is testing. Verses 4 and 5 says, His eyelids test, or you could translate that judge. His eyelids judge the children of man. The Lord tests or judges the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. God is holy. And when he sees every thought, word, and deed on the entire planet being carried out by all 8 billion people. Just contemplate how great your God is that he can do that. He's always measuring that by his holiness, by the standard of his righteousness, by the terms of his law, he's measuring it all. It's interesting that that's translated their eyelids, and that is a literal translation of the Hebrew. His eyelids are testing. And you think, well, why eyelids? Well, he did say eyes, and that's what the Psalms do. They rhyme ideas, not words. And so when he talks about the eyes of the Lord sees all, then he'll say eyelids a second time as a synonym. It is a synonym for eyes. But I like what one commentator said. I like the way, the way he took it. He said, I, I think that David is there trying to portray an image before us, an image of someone squinting their eyes in order to carefully, intensely scrutinize something. 
you know, like a scientist looking in the microscope, trying to carefully not miss anything. The Lord, yes, his eyes see all, and he's squinting his eyes to carefully examine, to scrutinize the, our thoughts and words and deeds. And they're all measured against his perfect will. And as scripture later tells us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he says here, first of all, that the Lord tests the righteous. Why is the Lord judging the righteous? Why is the Lord looking at our thoughts, words, and deeds? What about the covenant of grace? What about the blood of the covenant? What about forgiveness? Well, he'll get to that, but... It is important that we understand that he sees and knows us as exhaustively as well and that he does test our thoughts, words, and deeds according to his holiness. And it's, there's a purpose in testing the righteous that is different than the testing for the wicked. The testing for the righteous, you know, that, that's to show you where you are in your progress of faith. It's easy to say that you trust God when the foundations of your life are strong. It's easy to say you trust God when there's a righteous government and you're in a righteous family and you go to a righteous church and your foundations are strong. It is suffering, grief, loss, threats that will cause you to really assess whether your faith is real, whether you're trusting the Lord. The Lord tests our faith to strengthen our faith. That's what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 1 when he says, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, gold perishes when it's put in too hot of a fire, but genuine faith cannot perish in the fire. Genuine faith is a gift of God. Genuine faith, genuine faith, the kind of faith that God gives you by his Holy Spirit is indestructible. And what's amazing about it is the fires of the trial actually make that faith stronger. And those of you who've been through some really serious suffering know what David's talking about. There was one other kindness that the nurse gave me when she, before she put me in that horrible tube in the MRI machine. She not only gave me the blindfold, not only gave me the headphones, but she also gave me a button to hold my hand. And she said, if you really freak out in there and you can't take it anymore, hit the button and we'll pull you out. And it was, was comforting to know that when those waves of panic came on me, that if I hit that button, that I could get out of there. But I didn't hit it. Why? Because it would have meant that it was all waste whatever 15, 20 minutes, however long I had suffered would have been all for nothing. I would have to do it again or not do it at all. I would not get the benefit of the diagnosis and I would not get the benefit of the treatment for whatever was wrong with me. Don't you wish there was a button you could push in some of the trials of your life? <laughs> Lord, I've had enough. Okay, get me out of here. But that would be our will, not his will. That would be what we think is best for us, not what he thinks is best for us. And you can trust him, don't trust yourself. There's a purpose in it. And that purpose is for you to share in his holiness. That's what Hebrews 12 says. Hebrews 12 says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. A stronger faith and more holiness in your life is worth more than anything you might give up through your suffering. The Lord tests us with trials and suffering because he loves us. It's what a good father does. It's part of our sanctification. That's the righteous. But what about the wicked? What about those who reject the covenant of grace? What about those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? Who have not had their sins paid for at the cross? Who have not been cleansed and made innocent through the work of Christ? Well, that's what Hebrews 10 is talking about. This is what their future looks like, according to Hebrews 10. A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What I want you to notice is in verse 6. Look at verse 6. David not only acknowledges the holiness and justice of God and the wrath of God against sin and sinners, but he calls for it. He says, let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. That word sulfur is the modern word. You know what the original uh, English word that was the older translations put there? Fire and brimstone. Next time somebody challenges you and says, when's the last time you heard a fire and brimstone sermon in your church? You can say July 16th. Fire and brimstone, where does that come from? Why is that a biblical phrase? Fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone, where does it come from? Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, from that point on, is a figure, an image of God's judgment, of his hatred of sin, of his holiness, of his necessity to punish sin completely. You know, it's another way in which the Psalms are different than the hymns in our hymnal and the songs that we sing. It's the Psalms often, very often, take comfort in the coming judgment of God. We're embarrassed by it, but the psalmists are comforted by it. The wrath of God against sin, the coming judgment of God, that day when everyone will be held accountable, that's crucial to our theology. Jesus said in Luke 17, on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur, or fire and brimstone, rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus said when he comes back, he's bringing fire and brimstone against the unrepentant wicked with him. Don't be embarrassed by that message. That's our hope. Not only the hope because it'll be the day of our salvation because of the covenant of grace, but it's our hope because we love holiness. We love justice. You know, when they talk about some horrific serial pedophile that they arrest, we want to throw the book at them. We hate their sin. We're, we're disgusted by their sin. We want them to pay for it. But not our sin. However much you hate sin, God hates it a million times more. And God is holy, God is just, and that day of judgment is coming. Jesus said, 
Fire and brimstone, just like in the day of Lot, it's going to come when I come back. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, says, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, God, condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's part of the gospel. 21st century Christians are embarrassed by that message, but it's part of the gospel. There is no gospel if that's not true. Jesus died for nothing if that's not true. It's what you deserve. And he took in your place. It is this truth that enables us to despair when all the foundations of society are falling apart and are destroyed around us. You are meant to be angry about the wickedness that prevails in our culture because God's angry about it and it will be held to account. Yes, there are many progressives, so to speak, who among the church who would say, ah, but Jesus, that same Jesus who just talked about fire and brimstone a moment ago, this Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And that's right. We are not to retaliate. We are not to seek vengeance. We are not to strike back when we are struck. But Paul tells us why. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Paul in Romans 12 says why we are to turn the other cheek. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Turn the other cheek, he's saying. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We can live with the injustice and oppression and wickedness of the world all around us. And even when it comes against us and we suffer as a result of it, it should make us angry, but we don't retaliate because we're not that person's judge. The Lord is on the throne. He sees all and he tests all and judgment is coming and justice will be served. So you can be at peace until that day. We overcome fear by focusing on the foundation of our faith. By not focusing on our immediate circumstances, but focusing on the bigger picture, and that bigger picture is in heaven. Our foundation is the throne of the Lord in heaven. And it cannot be shaken. And we're receiving a kingdom, according to Hebrews 12, that cannot be shaken. The Lord sovereignly controls all, the Lord sees all, and the Lord tests and judges all. And so David concludes this psalm in verse 7 saying, The Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. I want you to know one other thing about interpreting the psalms. When the psalms talk about the righteous, it's talking about one of two things. Because no man is righteous in the sight of this holy God. You're not righteous, I'm not righteous. And so when the psalms talk about the righteous, it's either talking about Jesus prophetically because he is the only one who is tested in his thoughts, words, and deeds and scored a perfect score. 
It's either the righteous is either Jesus or it's those who are righteous by faith in Jesus through the covenant of grace. Those people will behold the face of God. And that is the greatest desire. You remember what I said about what theology is? Theology is the deep desire to know God. The righteous, those saved by grace, will see his face. Moses said, show me your glory. Is that the desire of your heart this morning? Psalm 56, I want to close with this. Because Psalm 56 communicates the same message. It's a great psalm. Go home and read it this afternoon. Communicates the very same message as Psalm 11. But it brings out in a beautiful way something that David didn't mention in Psalm 11. And it mentions here, I I want to read it for you. I want you to notice what he says. David says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And he goes on to say, you have kept count of my tossings. You see, the Lord's on the throne and he sees all and judges all. And to prove that, he knows how many times you tossed in bed last night struggling with your fears and anxieties. You don't even know how many times you tossed in bed last night, but the Lord knows. And then he goes on to say, "Put you put my tears in your bottle. How many tears have you cried facing the trials and sufferings and fears of your life? How many tears have you tr- cried? You don't know, but God knows. He says, are they not in your book? And then he concludes with this great statement of faith based on the covenant of grace. He says this, this I know that God is for me. God is for me. If God is for me, who can be against me? That, my friends, is how you overcome any fear in your life. By faith. Let's pray. Father, Forgive us for giving in to our fears. Forgive us for seeking to escape circumstances when you have called us to walk through them in faith. Forgive us for turning to our televisions, turning to our phones, turning to our earthly friends and advisors. Forgive us for turning to pride and the flesh in times of fear. Teach us to look to your throne. Remind us that you see us completely. We are naked and exposed. You know our rising up and our sitting down. You know every thought in our minds. You know the words before we speak them. But I didn't finish that quote from Psalm 139 earlier because it goes on to say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Only because the blood of Christ has paid for my sin can I say that knowing that your exhaustive knowledge of my thoughts, words, and deeds is wonderful. It's comforting. It gives me peace because you have saved me by your grace. Thank you, Lord. Teach us to love holiness and to hate sin more and more. Become like you and draw nearer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.